0: Welcome to The Book Show, and this is our last show before the summer break. A little later, Elaine Feeney will read from her new collection, Rise, and we'll also have a reading from Stephen Ray from Hot Dance, a novel written by playwright Stuart Parker, which has been published posthumously. First, though, we're delving into the world of monsters. This young monster by Charlie Fox builds itself as an exploration and celebration of artists who raise hell, transforming their bodies and creating wonderfully nightmarish visions with their art. Charlie Fox joins me now from London. Charlie, the first essay in the book is about Buster Keaton, who is the most famous comedic star off the silent screen, but not someone who most people would call a monster. So why him and how does he relate to this theme?
1: Uh, I think because Buster Keaton's just kind of like a magical creature. When he was first being shown around in vaudeville shows in this act he had with his parents where his father would kind of throw him around the stage like some sort of live-action Tom and Jerry figure whilst his mother improvised on the saxophone, he was billed as the little boy who couldn't be damaged. He was sold as this kind of invulnerable, almost mutant creature who, you know, couldn't suffer any kind of wounds and would just get up immediately and be ready to go and to receive more punishment to the kind of rapture of these uh, hungry audiences and to me that was bizarre and kind of wonderful and at the same time it kind of was allowing me to get my teeth into the theme of the book of he's also so beautiful you know Buster Keaton he looks like this gorgeous angelic melancholy spaniel this ghost of a boy I just like the juxtaposition of breaking bones and angelic beauty and fireworks going off.
0: One of the people you profile in This Young Monster is the New York photographer Diane Arbus. And she was fascinated by freaks and and by that, you know, people with disfigurements, diminished capacity, disabilities and peculiar sense of dress and so on. So do you think that her interest in these people was a way of escaping her aristocratic family? And as you quote in the book, a sense of the boho princess escaping privilege for self-discovery as an artist.
1: Mm hmm. I think it's kind of a nasty swamp with Arbus that you can kind of get lost in, that there's this sense that maybe she was deriving a voyeuristic delight from ogling these people who were abnormal or lower caste, and that she was this disaffected aristocratic princess or something like that. But to me, I think that... That stuff is really oversold, and to me, Arbus's pictures are extraordinarily beautiful and empathetic because they pay attention to things that we would ordinarily uh, exclude or deny the existence of, whether it's people who are circus performers and dwarves and people whose bodies don't conform to a kind of antiseptic form. They don't look normal. And that's a fantastic thing, I think, to pay attention to people like that. And she obviously felt that she was not an ordinary person or that she was deformed on the inside, perhaps. And so that was a company, that retinue of freaks. As she called them, you know, freaks is something I photographed a lot. She probably felt more at home there.
0: Do you think the fact that that Arbus suffered from depression, did she find a sense of shared identity with these people who were, you know were classified as
1: freaks? Mm, I think so, definitely. I think that going into that underworld was obviously very kind of exciting for her, but at the same time, there was a sense that that was the community that she belonged in, not in this world of drinking cocktails and sampling different furs. Her father was a very strange kind of vulpine gadabout womanizer gambler and he ran a furious on uh sax fifth avenue and uh th- this world of aristocratic suffocation was not one that she wanted to be part of she's like pinocchio you know she wanted to go off and join the circus and uh take in all the things that were part of that for her, re- her for her reality to become you know more hallucinogenic and i think that's wonderful as well
0: Throughout history, people have been really fascinated by the strange and the carnivalesque. So is there some sort of perverse relief that we're not them, that we're doing all right because we're not the freaks?
1: You know, some people might feel like that. I would feel like that's kind of a sinister reaction. I think that the kind of fireworks within the book, the explosive forces in the book is trying to say that to be a monster is a powerful thing. It's good to shake things up. It's good to cause trouble. It's good to make mischief and it's good not to be normal. To, you know, normality is really tedious. Normality is quite boring to me. And all of these people, even if what they do, someone like Rainer Werner Fassbinder, who's in the book, who was a drug taking, you know, Hellion, just a man who behaved like an absolute beast, he still pushed his behaviour and pushed himself and worked his art in ways that other people wouldn't dare to do. And I think that that ability to open yourself up to transformation to be wild to be deranged that's a great thing it's good to get lost go where the wild things are
0: do you think then maybe that it's it's problematic that freaks and their lives even though they've been the inspiration for you know lots of like you mentioned fassbender and avant-garde filmmaking and writing and performance that they're often they're the villain they're sort of stereotyped in mainstream culture as the villain
1: mm, and i think that that's something that i really wanted to uh take apart the book isn't about so much why do we have monsters in the sense of we're normal and they're quarantined in this other kind of strange wilderness it's not a book about you know do we have monsters because of some strange sexual repression or do we have monsters because of folk tales it's much more about trying to have a radical empathy for these things that we would ordinarily have lurking under the bed these things which are too strange to confront you know I wanted to feel like a werewolf or I wanted to feel like uh, Alexander Delage in Clockwork Orange. I wanted to feel like uh, somebody who maybe had things going on inside their mind that were strange and frightening because I like to be scared as a writer. I like to stitch myself into strange situations and feel my voice distorting and feeling my grip on reality getting kind of looser. If you think about something like an American werewolf in London, the great horror film from 1980 directed by John Landis. The most amazing sequence of that I remember seeing as a child is that transformation that happens almost in real time where the fangs grow and you go from the fangs grow in this man's mouth and he becomes covered in fur and he turns into a wolf before your very eyes. That's incredible and what's incredible about it is that you have this intense empathy for the suffering of this man. You're in the monster's body and you're in the monster's mind and that's a really exciting place to be.
0: You've written a play called Spook House and it's presented in this collection of essays and your main characters are the very unlikely friends Klaus, who's Klaus Kinski from Nosferatu and a teenage green-skinned girl who's a sort of hybrid between Hermione from Harry Potter and the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz. So what brings this unlikely pair together and what do they get up to?
1: They hang out on Halloween night in a kind of suburban haunted house tripping out on potions and talking about drugs and talking about gothic contemporary art. They're almost like... Two teenagers, two supernatural teenagers, just having fun across the course of this evening and uh, all kinds of magical things start happening. They meet Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's hanging out on a tree branch uh, talking to a velvet raven and he's wearing the scarecrow suit that he wears in that film, The Wiz. And there's a chorus of trick-or-treaters all wearing Halloween masks who kind of howl like wolves and sing quotations. And, And I just really liked deforming things, all all the way through the book I was trying to get rid of my voice or get rid of a neutral voice that maybe we associate with criticism because I feel like writing what's supposedly non-fiction, you're handed a straitjacket in some ways, and I wanted to uh, writhe out of that, and so at some points I'll adopt the voice of somebody else, I'll take on the voice of Alice in Wonderland and she'll be stoned and hallucinating, or I'll take on the voice of uh, a vampire or a teenage witch, and all this kind of pop culture detritus will be swirling around and uh, I'll be in a mask, and that's, you know, that's a thrill, because things don't have to be ordinary, things don't have to be, all going on in the other room. And I wanted to be infected with all kinds of monstrous feelings to look in the mirror and not know who I was.
0: You begin the book with a letter to, I think, one of the most famous beasts we all know, which is the beast from Beauty and the Beast. Um, as we all know, he turns out not to be a beast at all and it's redeemed by his inner beauty and the fact that someone could love him for what he is and not what he looks like. So are you trying to encourage people to accept others not on face value but on who and what they value?
1: Yeah, I would think so. I would try and get as far away from a idea of the... Of ordinariness as possible. An idea of, you know, sedate and ordinary beauty. I think the thing about the real like kind of magic trick that I was interested in with the book was taking things that we might think of as perverse or strange and revealing the beauty of them, whether it was Diane Arbus's photographs or whether it was the uh, beast with his body that's sold as a perversity. But I just think he's extraordinarily beautiful. And I was always very depressed as a child when uh, the beast turned from being this fantastic mixture of tiger and bear and lion and just became an ordinary French hunk. You know, that was really disappointing to me. I wanted uh, beauty to into a beast and for the two of them to have all kinds of adventures I wanted to be a beast too it's good to be beastly you know a sunset to me isn't beautiful or to me real beauty is something that disturbs you something that's unsettling something that shakes you up that's really beautiful.
0: A lot of contemporary nonfiction includes an autobiographical arc, which you avoid, and you actually point out in the book that you hate that kind of autobiography. So why is that?
1: I just think that like, we live in a, a time of kind of really where whatever autobiography means, it's good to just go against that. Obviously, a lot of the book is kind of heavily autobiographical and there are all kinds of weird autobiographical confessions and things slipped under. But I just think a straightforward saying I all the time this is who i am and this is how i feel i don't feel like things are that concrete i like to get in there and mess it up so maybe i became a werewolf or i became the beast or i became alice in wonderland or something like that was just a really uh thrilling sensation because it was getting it was getting away from the tedium of this is how I feel, this is what's going on, This kind of meaningless confessions. Because, of course, we're all autobiographers now. Everybody is uh, selling this ideal of themselves. I wanted to get away from that.
0: Charlie, thanks so much. This Young Monster by Charlie Fox is published by Fitzgeraldo Editions. Now, Galway-based poet Elaine Feeney's latest collection, Rise, is a frank and urgent take on modern life, illness, politics and history. Elaine Feeney read for us from this collection. This is Alternative Truth.
2: Alternative Truth After Sarah Clancy Post-Truth Truth truth After Dinner Pre-Truth Alternative Truth Truth Without Fact Respect the Truth there be truth in my house Truth Victim Truth Orphan, do you know the truth? Tell the truth Canon Law Truth My Truth Is there any truth to be had? Chicken Soup for the Soul Truth the winner's truth, the undeniable truth, the truth of my life, the second truth, the biblical truth, check your sources truth, cursed relic truth, medical diagnosis truth, truth before bed, truth in the morning, child's truth, delusional truth, car crash, two tales both true truth. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The skirt was short truth, consent truth. would we'll be serving truth any minute now in the parlour. The kind truth, delivering truth, the truth of the rabbi, the sun-worship truth, the naked truth, the dealer's truth, gut-wrenching truth, the coma truth, the truth in your dreams, colonial truth, the truth of my tale, delete the truth, mute truth, define truth, write the truth down, braille truth, moral truth, stone-raving mad truth, water truth, organic truth, 100% sustainable truth, global warming truth, punched-in-the-face truth white-collar truth, any tribunals truth, tracker mortgage truth, I have your best interest at heart truth, there is no heartbeat truth, there is brain activity truth, life-saving truth, the water is deep truth, lock the doors truth, college campus truth, sworn to secrecy truth, friendly fire truth, the truth of language, truth spy, truth sly, truth, deniable truth.
0: And Elaine Feeney's collection of poetry, Rise, is published by Salmon Poetry. Stuart Parker's plays are now recognised as some of the most important work to ever come out of Northern Ireland. Fearless in their examination of Ireland during the 1970s and 80s. That Stuart Parker also wrote an autobiographical novel is less well known. Hop Dance, written in the 1970s, ten years after Parker himself had his leg amputated, focuses on a 19-year-old university student, Tosh, who also has his leg removed. In a couple of minutes, we'll speak to the editor of this previously unpublished novel, Anne Parker's niece. But first, have a listen to actor Stephen Ray reading now from Hop Dance, in which the character Tosh is coming to terms with the physical effects of his amputation.
3: All is saved. Is this me, this head voice? Are you Tosh, eh? That warm bath with the wound in its middle down there? That is your body. That's you too. Where does I end? Your shaved-off stubble, is that part of this body dragging me down? There, I don't think of it as me, I objectify it. But other times I do, when you come, when you swim, voice immersed in body. Then I love it. Bodies. I could cry for bodies if this one's eyes weren't parched. The young boy at the bus stop, just looking down on the pity of his thin shoulder blades. The whole bus irradiated by that. For one moment, a cosmic smile. I could have embraced the world. The astonishing, terrible spectacle of us all living our lives.
0: And that was Stephen Ray reading there from Hop Dance by Stuart Parker. Joining me now in studio is Stuart's niece, Lynn Parker. Lynn, you really got to know your uncle in your teenage years, but tell us a little about your early memories of him. He came back
4: from America in 1969, a very significant year uh, in the North, but he brought with him this extraordinary sense of style and fun and the other. So we got to know him really at Christmas, my sister and myself, that was when he would visit and he was a Saturnalian figure who had a magical quality about him. He'd bring his guitar, He would. we would all sing, he would develop these little plays. He wrote plays for me and my sister to perform for our parents and
0: grandparents and this was my introduction to theatre so I owe a lot to that. There's no getting away from it so was there from an early age. You've been a long-time champion of his work and you staged several productions of his plays over the years through your theatre company Rough Magic so essentially you've ensured that there is you know an investment in his work for modern audiences so what is it that excites you still about Stuart Parker's voice and his perspective?
4: Well the work hasn't just been done by Rough Magic it's been done by the Abbey, the Lyric, Tinderbox, and and beyond I mean his first play, Spokesong, song was done all around the world and Pantagost has also been done as well so I feel the plays very personally but they are are there as great works of literature in the canon of, of Irish drama. This, however, is uh, very, very close to Stuart as a personal testament. This novel, which he, he had complete control over, you know the way you, you hand over control when you write a play, you hand it to other people. This is directly his voice and his experience, and it's extraordinary. And I, I just find it shocking to go into that whole trauma with him that he then turned into a piece of art and it's very funny as well as being quite
0: searing. So then with all of Stewart's profile and the regard he's held in, why do you think it took so long for Hoptons to be published?
4: That it is published is due to Marilyn and her dedication and tenacity. This experience was something that he wrote about but he hadn't finished the piece and when he died prematurely at 47 in 1988 I think the focus went on to getting the plays on, and that's what's happened, and that was what he considered himself primarily. But he was also a poet, and as we see now, a novelist. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity to look at this other form of his writing. You see the imagination and this, this ability to deal with an episode in his life which couldn't have been more visceral and horrific, and yet he turns it to account. And you see now how that informed the plays. Mm. The, there's so much in this novel that's, that then goes on to be a motif here or there in the works uh, for the theatre, but it's also kind of the, the whole attitude that he had to life, which was that you seize it, you know, that you, you we have so many near-misses with things, and you've got to actually grasp it, and you feel that, that strength and that, that, that acuity.
0: Hopdance refers very directly to Stuart's own experience of cancer from which which is why the leg amputation happened and you mentioned a very distinctive image of his gait and the way he walks and you have very warm images of him from when you were a child but what did you actually learn or did you learn anything new about him through reading Hopdance how did, your, did your view of him change in any way
4: I don't know that it changed I, I, I realised how lonely he felt through that whole experience and the family couldn't have been more supportive but they were equally traumatised, nobody really knows how to deal with something like that until it happened I did feel this nascent personality and yet at 19 who isn't unformed you're looking for things and very few of us have to deal with something as, as extraordinary as that but you see that it turned into a philosophy in some way he was able to absorb what happened to him and that he the artist was then able to channel that into finding a meaning for life a, 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 an interpretation for the world we we find ourselves in
0: we're also joined uh, from our Belfast studio by Marilyn Richterick. Marilyn, you've edited Hop Dance uh, and you've also written a biography of Stuart Parker, Stuart Parker, A Life. He didn't really talk much about his amputation to people. And do you put this down to shock or an inability to express the horror of, of the experience that is losing part of your body?
5: Well, I think in the initial aftermath of it, it just it wasn't something he wanted to talk about. Um, when he was 19 and, and lost the leg, his initial instinctive impulse was to brush it off, to behave as if it were a minor inconvenience, or at least that's the image he wanted to project. He tried very hard to get back as quickly as possible to his old activities to act like nothing much had happened, which of course wasn't true. But one reason also I think he didn't want to talk about it was that he was afraid the cancer would recur. Um, This was a very real possibility that haunted him for the better part of a decade. And it was only as he approached, you know, his 30th birthday that he started to believe that, okay, yes, that was a close call, and now I can put that away and not worry about it anymore. But it's also time to come to terms with the fact of my mortality which I realized, like uh, Lynn says, in a visceral way as a teenager, but hadn't really
0: processed. How did his illness affect him and and feed into his work?
5: Again, you know, when it happened, his entire worldview, it it made him feel like a complete freak that something like this had happened to him. You know, teenagers are self-conscious naturally, (laughs) and he was (laughs) self-conscious too, but I think through the process of recuperating and adjusting to the new reality, getting the artificial leg, learning to use it, he started to recognize that actually the loss of the leg was a, a reminder of what all people have in common, which is mortality. So it became something that bound him to all other people. I think it made him see other differences that people tend to focus on obsessively uh, as trivial.
0: Throughout the novel, the character Tosh has to explain to many people what's happened to his leg, but he's also trying to reconcile what it is to to lose a part of yourself. And if you're moving from the, the physical to the philosophical in the novel, is there a sense that what's really been examined here is actually the notion of what the self is? Certainly that's
5: part of it. You know, where does I end? Um, that's one line from the novel. He, He is very conscious the night before the amputation. There's a wonderful passage right before, you know, the night before the surgery. He didn't learn about it. Stuart Parker didn't learn about it, and in the novel, Tosh doesn't learn that he's going to have this surgery until the night before, and there's a wonderful passage where he thinks about this. What is this going to mean? And he feels sure that he isn't going to be the same person
0: after this. There's a lot of dialogue in this and many scenes within the novel. And obviously Parker gave up on the writing of the novel to focus on plays. So do you know whether he had any urge to ever go back? to writing more prose would he have written more novels short stories do you think he was just
4: about to direct a film a screenplay that he'd he'd written for the BBC when he died and I think he was interested in every conceivable form and I think he probably would have returned to novel writing at some point but film was the thing that was really starting to get him
0: excited what well, we've all missed out on. <laughs> Thanks so much to Lynn Parker and to Marilyn Richterick for joining me to discuss Hop Dance, which is published by Lilliput. Let's hear another reading from Stephen Ray, examining that sense of self explored in Hop Dance.
3: The first images were bone joints, knuckles, elbows, knees reeling by his open eyes. After a while, they began to appear dislocated, arthritic and then disembodied wounds appeared like mouths in fetid air, some mouthing obscenely at him, some biting at him, some growling flatulently at him. His body tingled as though from electric current. He touched his fingertips to his forehead, and they came away dripping. Amidst the howl of the pain, he grew aware of his toes overlapping one another and clenched tight. He would have to untangle them and straighten them out, but they wouldn't budge. He strained at them, but there was nothing. It was a niche that couldn't be scratched. It was a phone ringing and ringing that wouldn't be answered. You have no toes, but I can feel them there, twisted and squeezed together. I've got to flex them. The need rose to engulf him. He frantically tried to snag his mind on some other hook. Still, the feel of the stiff, cramped foot goaded him to madness. There is no foot. It's the nerves tricking you. Think about something else. Pay no attention to it. Don't, don't let it get control.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of our last book show, This Side of the Summer. The producer is Regan Hutchins and the series producer is Zoe Cummins. We'll be back on air in September, but in the meantime, enjoy the next few months of reading and keep in touch at Te on Twitter.